0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mad in America radio podcast. This is Ayur Dhar, your host for today. I'm an instructor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a research news writer for the Mad in America website. It has been an interesting week for psychology. In a recent article in the Journal of Medical Association, researchers pushed for a better understanding of social risk factors like poverty and food insecurity in clinical settings. Another study from the University of California found that involuntary hospitalization increases the risk of suicide among mental health patients. You can read these and a lot more in the Mad in America research news section. In light of these developments, I'm happy to be interviewing our guest, Dr. Diana Kopua. Dr. Kopua is a Maori psychiatrist and the founder of Mahi A'atua. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Recently, she published a paper in Transcultural Psychiatry along with Maori art and culture expert Mark Kopua and critical psychiatrist Pat Bracken. We're here to talk about this article and a lot more, but just a little bit of background first. The Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand, and recent research has brought to light certain increased rates of mental disorders and suicide attempts in the population. Dr. Kopua has developed mahi o atua, which is a Maori approach, as they call it, an engagement, an assessment, and an intervention to address the mental distress and suffering in this population. The approach involves healing in the context of one's family and community, and is achieved by using Maori creation stories and narratives called pūrakau. The authors emphasize that this is not just a set of techniques or a new therapy but a drastically different way of conceptualizing and addressing suffering amongst the Maori. It is an alternative to traditional psychiatric intervention. Research like this is crucial at a time when psychology is facing intense critique from the recent replication crisis in its classic experiments to the attacks on dsm5's overenthusiastic diagnostic criteria. Additionally, um, psychology's ethical priorities were questioned a few years ago by the Hoffman Report, which found that APA leadership and staff colluded with Bush-era administration to lose an APA's ethics policy in order to take part in prisoner torture and abuse. So paradigm-shifting work in psychology is more crucial now than ever, and the authors of this research claim that this approach is an alternative to the Western pharmaco and therapeutic interventions that are making their way through the global south, through the ongoing march of what we call the global mental health movement. Does psychiatry need a drastic revision or do we simply need to tweak already existing theories? Let's find out. In our conversation today, I hope to cover topics ranging from the specifics of this approach to the broader questions of colonialism, the global mental health movement, and the importance of language and narratives in how we understand our world and ease our suffering. Dr. Kapoor, welcome to Mad in America radio podcast. How are you? Tena koutou.
1: I'm very good, thank you. It's lovely to be talking to you.
0: It's lovely to be talking to you. Um, so let's dive in, actually, with the first question. So can you kind of take me briefly through the process of what Mahi Atua actually is and how the approach works? The procedure, maybe an example, um, anything like that? Sure.
1: Mahiatua, I developed in the mid-90s. It's, it's not that it's new, but at that time I was a psychiatric community nurse working uh, attached to a Māori mental health service. So a uh, Kaupapa Māori service is a service that's developed to specifically grow and sustain Māori approaches to Māori who come into mental health services and at the time there were many models that were focusing on approaches that were consistent with Māori culture and what Māori as a population uh, value. So pre-colonisation we had a strong understanding and a strong connection of our relationship and our position in the environment with the elements, with the natural elements. And many of us as Māori are disconnected from our culture and from our language and our knowledge of our ancestry. And I developed it at a time where I was fairly new in my nursing, but I had uh, taken some time out and uh, completed a Māori language course, and it was a total immersion course. and it was there that I learned these stories and I learned them in my native language as well. And it just all fell into place. There was nothing academic. There was nothing huge. It was just, wow. And I could really see that when I went back to work in mental health, how valuable these stories would be Mm -hmm. in conversations with people who were coming in with distress I then went on to work with young people, adolescents, and there were pictures on the wall in these rooms that I was working with families in, and and it made sense to just share the stories. And the more and more I shared these stories, the less and less I started using the traditional psychiatric assessment tools. Uh, I guess uh, it felt right. Um, we were in the right environment to able to test these ideas and and it worked and so what eventuated is over time the the service so the context was important to the development of these ideas and the service became um, involved in training psychiatric registrars so doctors training to be psychiatrists we were asked to put together a training program and I was involved in the development of this the coordination and also the training of them with regard to mahiatua. And and the registrars were fascinated, most of them not being Indigenous to New Zealand nor born in New Zealand, Mm. were fascinated, like most people who come to New Zealand are. They want to know the culture of New Zealand. They want to know more about the richness that our Māori culture offers. But, of course, many who were coming and didn't get that opportunity. And through their psychiatric assessment, they got to pathologize Māori and they got to see the parts that weren't working well according to a psychiatric lens. So using the stories, I noticed that there was some reluctance from even my own Māori colleagues within this Māori context and their own disconnection had led them to the Māori service to work so they could strengthen who they were but what happened is if they felt uncomfortable or lacked confidence in their Māori identity they would resort back to their western frames of knowledge Mm so their training from a western lens. Yeah so it had an impact on um, who was going to use the approach and so we came up with an idea that we would involve ourselves in mahi atua and present mahi atua to a national forum. Mm-hmm. And so we, what we did is we went away and researched different characters or different atua Māori gods. Right. That they were personifications of the natural environment, and each uh, clinician went away and and studied a little bit more about the characters. So the same work that I was doing with families in distress, Mm
0: -hmm. we were
1: doing teams, and it really moved us as a team forward with developing Mahiatua. We presented it nationally. We got some really good feedback. But what I noticed is that when I went back into our multidisciplinary team meetings Mm -hmm. in a Māori mental health service, that people continued to look to the psychiatrist and the psychologist mm-hmm. for the answers, right? And and to discuss the problems in from a Western perspective. So what I decided to do was go to med school to become a psychiatrist to gain power. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it took thirteen years. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I do not consider myself an academic. I don't consider myself to. Um, be a scientist in mm-hmm. fact in the western sense of the word but I did it and I did it so that I could gain power so that I could become a wedge that kept the door open to allow for indigenous leaders in my world to be able to front solution finding right. and be able to change the system in which we operate. Mm-hmm. That's what I did. And during that journey, there were a series of relationship issues that I had. And and I met, I was really fortunate in 2009 to meet my husband, Mark, who is the, the other author. And he's, he's a tohunga. He is a specialist. It's a word we use for someone who is a specialist in a particular area. And Mark is a specialist in our a traditional art carving, mm-hmm. carving houses, and he also reinstated the facial mukul And he is someone who is an expert in our incantations, so our karakia. And that was the the the, the joining of us as a as a couple um, is inseparable to the joining of his strength in his world mm-hmm. and. My, and the psychiatric world with the same agenda, which was our Māori ways of knowing should be front-footing this community in particular with issues that uh, pertain to Māori. And so with that, we knew that we were going to move. I, I trained in Wellington, which is the capital of New Zealand, And I knew I was going to go back to my tribal lands, which is the Tairawhiti, the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. And when we got here, I was, so as a fellow, I am the only Ngāti Puro psychiatrist from my tribe in, in the world. And so coming back to my hometown was a big deal for me. And and so it was there that I was going to plant the seeds of mahiatua mm-hmm. and start growing it as not just something you do, but a way of being. Mm-hmm. And so has turned into a way of being. So when you talk about how we utilize it, it's actually about us as individuals within our community thinking about how we indigenize our spaces. So we're in New Zealand which is where the indigenous people, Māori, uh, come from, and how do we ensure that their knowledge system, our knowledge system, Mm -hmm. is prioritised? And in doing that, we needed to think about remaining active learners, and even though we might be experts in psychiatry, we're not experts in the the way of knowing that is indigenous. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so therefore, when we're working with Māori, how do we maintain this state of active learning? And I don't see that that often with psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. And the third way that mahiatua tries to be, or people who are using mahiatua, is to embrace negative feedback. And in 2009, I... Uh, came across someone who was quite passionate about feedback-informed treatment, Scott Miller and Barry Duncan's approach, and that resonated with me because in order to grow our collective performance in developing mahiatua, we needed to learn ways of being able to receive negative feedback and give negative feedback in order to grow our collective performance. So, when I became, after a year and a half of being here, the head of department in psychiatry, I really pushed for a new innovative service and that became Teku Kū Watawata. And it was the front door of a mental health service founded on Mahi atua, mm-hmm. being able to follow these principles. And when it came to individuals working with families in distress, it followed a particular format which is to offer a karakia, an incantation or a prayer consistent of what the family valued, not of what we did. Mm -hmm. But as a system, we decided that we would address institutional racism and promote indigeneity by going back and learning and, and reinstating our traditional prayer, our traditional karakia, but when families were in the room, they would be offered something that they valued, not what the system was promoting. Right. We then followed on with Faka Fanonga which is um, very common for Māori. We will
0: tell you who we are and yeah, where you're okay. from.
1: And the objective is to connect, to find
0: a yeah. connection. It's between. very similar in India. Yes, people you know introduce themselves as This is where I'm from. This is the land I belong. Yeah. And, and
1: we, you know, you can have these little jokes about intertribal tribal warfare, and, uh, but at the same time, it gives us an understanding of how connected or disconnected the family are. Not a bit of time using feedback-informed treatment because we do not believe that mahiatua is significant for, for all families. Mm-hmm. It is definitely the way that we are practicing as um, we call the mata or the change agents who specialize in mahiatua but we, we really want to use feedback-informed treatment to make sure you get a good outcome and that we focus on the alliance. After we do, and very similar to open dialogue, I do know a bit about open dialogue. It, it is very much about finding out the meaning behind the distress, having a shared dialogue, and when we feel like we've got enough content, there's two of us in the room co-working one of them will use the whiteboard and draw, and the other will narrate okay. a story. And so we um, we use our creation stories, and some of them can take two minutes, some of them can take 10 minutes. Right. Some of us are experts in them, and some of them aren't. Some of the families mm-hmm. are familiar with these right, stories, but right. no, you can use these as, as a psychological f- structure or framework. And others are completely unaware of these purako, these stories. So that's what we do. When we finish sharing the story, we then have a conversation, getting curious about the characters in the story and what resonated most with you. And the objective is to try and shift your lens to think about the problem from a different perspective right. and for each other to listen from a different perspective. And families are often. Mothers are often uh, being a- able to listen to their children and really listen to something that they hadn't really heard before.
0: Mm.
1: when we've shared our reflections, we then have what we call Hennydo here. she is a mighty goddess, she represents waters and The two clinicians, the two co-workers will look at each other and we have a saying, nothing about the families without the families. So we don't have a a multidisciplinary team meeting as such. Mm -hmm. What we have is a conversation with each other to allow the families to listen and to respond to our wonderings and to our thinking. After we listen to their response, we collectively weave together some ideas about what the next step is. So tolerating uncertainty, believing in spirituality right. and relationship and valuing our connection to story, our connection to our creation story strengthens our connection to each other and then creates a space that allows families who are in distress to narrate their own story. But that might be, actually take a little bit of time. It, it varies for different families. So in essence, that's mahiatua. What it's about is uh, we're trying to address institutional racism to be, to be precise, but you'll know that many people don't like talking about racism. Right. They don't like accepting that there is such a thing as institutional racism. And to be honest, it can become a little bit bleak and what we say is that mahiatua is an opportunity to show the solution. And we believe that institutional racism actually stops our Indigenous knowledge from having a space in the healing uh, department, Mm -hmm. the health system. And so mahiatua allows us to forge some space as a way of addressing institutional racism.
0: Right. Because, well, um, psychology is just one of the Western discourses and it tends to bully the language of anywhere that it goes, right? So mental distress suddenly becomes uh, a personality disorder and so on and so forth. And I have so many questions. So um, I will begin with, uh, I I was listening to you and you were talking about, um, you know, different phrases that you used. So... um, and you have said that it is not just a set of new techniques or a therapy. It, it has a different ontology. It has a different way of understanding what knowledge is, of reconceptualizing suffering and distress. So, what is the place of language in all of this? Uh, you know, um, our, our narratives, the words that we use, and the effect that they have on people who then use them, right? So, for example, you had to become a psychiatrist to then give this language that you're now using some kind of a Value because people would just keep looking at psychiatrists. So, could you talk a little bit about both the language that you use and the ways you've seen the language of side disciplines bully other forms of narratives?
1: Yeah. So every time you ask a question, I'm I, I want to go back, and it's and I think it's very much a an indigenous right. uh, way of being where you want to go back and give the background mm-hmm. and the context, and just briefly part of colonization right. and its impact. Uh, as close as my father who who grew up in a small town on the east coast of the North Island, Tiki Tiki. And him and many others were, they were punished for speaking their native tongue. So at home, they spoke uh, te reo Māori uh, and that's how they would conceptualise emotion. So even the way that they feel changes the experience. And with What I know in psychiatry, when we know that you are severely sad, we're looking for it to fit into a criteria. But when people are sad, what we are trying to do is find the meaning behind that distress, but without imposing a knowledge system that is foreign to our country, alien, yes, and I do believe that if with any story, really, so narrative therapy, right, takes mm-hmm. on this this idea, but mahiatua is is more than narrative therapy. It's being able to reinstate what was taken from us, so that we can reconceptualize and reimagine what it's like for us to feel from a human's perspective particularly as a, as a peoples who were colonised. So this becomes our new human reality mm-hmm. that we get land and language and culture taken away from us. So when we are asked to talk from a word, that word never translates into a Māori word well. And so using Purako story, allows you to not punish yourself for not being fluent in your Maori language. We agree that uh, we understand that we're all in the position that we're in because of colonization. And many of us are at different levels of the continuum in terms of confidence with language. But even those who are fluent in Maori could potentially be quite colonized. Right, But it, not for me to tell another Māori how colonised they are. What they need is time and space to be able to narrate their own story. My job, however, as a psychiatrist, when you're continuously pathologizing Indigenous people who really are expressing a reality of being colonised, is to make it aware Of the political context that psychiatry and psychology sit within. So as we share stories with and just language matters so much, but as we share the stories, what we find is that there are some phrases and there are some key words, and there are some mighty gods who remind us that our ancestors, our primal parents experienced distress and problems and there are incantations and phrases and there are some amazing things that come out of the stories that when we're listening as a collective we pick up on and for example noho tatapu is a word for being in a state of restriction and it came about when our primal parents the sky and the earth were held in a tight embrace. And they had they had 70 children. And eventually over time they became frustrated with the tightness and the, the lack of movement. And so in the story we introduced characters. Some wanted it to stay the same. Some some wanted to see change but were too scared. Some were forward thinking and just wanted to go out and, and grab the change. Mm-hmm. We're watching from a distance and realizing, "Wow, I was supporting the status quo, but I think I need to change." Mm-hmm. So it was very much reflective of the situation we're in now, the crisis in psychiatry that right. we're in now. But the phase was "no tatapu." From it comes a word "tapu." "No tatapu." "Tata" is close, and "pu" is cluster. So from this phrase and from that story, from that creation story, comes the word tapu, meaning sacred. And what happened with colonization is sacred almost means don't touch it. It's too taboo. Mm-hmm. But while we're sharing these stories, people are starting to realize that when families come into our office, they're in a state of noho tapu. Right. So she- Hearing that story and allowing them to understand their restriction and the meaning behind it works on so many different cultural and political and social levels Mm -hmm. and also introduces a new language for us as humans to utilise, to conceptualise a new way of understanding distress
0: Mm
1: -hmm. that is unique for us as colonised Māori.
0: Okay, so I have two questions there. First, we're kind of living in a time of increasing cultural homogenization, right? I mean, I grew up in India and I grew up listening to the Beatles and watching Arnold Schwarzenegger's terrible movies. So, um, in a time like this, do you do you where do you see this approach going? With you know, more and more people kind of becoming homogenized, uh, especially people who are young, especially them, uh, adolescents. And you know, what do you see happening? Is that a worry? Is that a fear? Like how the the connection to these ancestral stories? How is it going to pan out in the next few years?
1: Oh, look! I have to say we're quite hopeful. We live in a small town with just under fifty thousand people. Uh, we formed a critical mass that became a movement. Social media has become our friend mm-hmm. to be able to be able to disperse and and join hands with those people who, right. who want to promote Indigenous um, ideology right. to be able to change the pathetic outcomes in our society for Māori. Um, and, you know, for, for a long time, it's, it's a little bit like being a crew down in the doldrums and not being able to see land. And you can get quite depressed about that. It's like there's no hope. Yeah. <laughs> but Mahiatua has been described as that one bird that tells you that land is near. All we did was created a critical mass, and it's it's gaining momentum. We're not the only ones. There are so many Māori organizations in New Zealand. There are there are so many indigenous peoples across the world who have experienced colonization who are joining forces and mm-hmm. creating movement. And in fact, there's quite a lot of movement. We have the Waitangi Tribunal who released today their recommendations about the primary health organization clearly being racist, and that's
0: holding the, count, the crown to account. Right. And I'm excited about that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, critical psychology and cultural psychology is my thing, and it's, it's a very exciting time to be in this uh, place. Absolutely. So with that, I will pose to you a question, which I have been asked, uh, you know, when I teach cultural psych, people usually ask me, so, you know, uh, you're talking about developing more indigenous and rooted um, ways of understanding experience instead of just putting language from one place to the other. But how local do we go? Like, at what point do we stop? And I have my own set of responses to that. But I, I would just like to know what you have to say for people who who ask you, you know, okay, so it's, it's a 50,000, it's a group of 50,000 people. Then do we move more local and start uh, developing new knowledges for people, you know, a group of 10,000 and 5,000? And is it feasible? So how do you respond to that so I can steal it and tell other people when they ask me these questions? <laughs> uh,
1: well, we have something called Fano ora in New Zealand. Mm. And Fano meaning family and ora meaning well-being. And I think that Fana Water is consistent with Mahiatua and feedback informed treatment and what the the voices from critical psychology and psychiatry are saying is that families have their solutions. Mm-hmm.
0: Instead and sort of the neurologization of family as the source of all sorts of okay, all right. It's very different.
1: Have, they have the resources within them. We just need to design the system that respects like truly validates them as the solutions. And I believe that communities have the solutions to their problems, and we just need to think how we invest small investments. We don't need to be the answer. I think that paternalistic way has, it, it needs I'm going to, to rescue you, kind of a thing, right? We'll come in and rescue you, uh, you now. Whānau water is um, something where Māori organisations have Uh, really grappled with trying to convince government that it is a a legitimate system and can operate without the need of government. Mm -hmm. And it's proven that the the real solutions come from those people who value those communities Mm -hmm. that they're working in, that they're part of them, that they're entrenched in the culture of those communities. And what we know now, with uh, the service that we developed, Tiku Watawata, which was founded on Mahiatua, is that we we halved the number of young people who needed to be referred into secondary services.
0: So there are results. There, there are there are numbers to show for that. And yeah, we know we have them. We stopped diagnosing, which meant that we stopped
1: tapping the doctor as the thing we needed to go to. We stopped uh, needing medication. And what I think Farna water can do now is look to that, that evidence that we've formed right. because what we've done to our communities is convinced them that we, the psychiatrists and psychologists are the experts mm-hmm. and we, undo this and I don't think there are many psychiatrists that disagree that it's become ridiculous and what we need to do is train our communities or not train as in set up another system where we're the experts but be able to encourage them that they have the confidence and capability and I don't think it's about doing away with psychiatry and psychology Mm -hmm. per se but I do think that there are some gatekeepers sitting at all tiers that hold on to the side disciplines. Mm -hmm. I do believe at an individual level that they have spent a lot of time and a lot of money investing in these tools to equip them to help their community. So to be now told by people like me that it's not helpful and that it's damaging right. Is it to their professional integrity, to their professional identity. I believe that it's about Māori finding the whānau water space and growing it, extending mm. it, and taking some of the resource away from secondary services. And then we can reduce the need for the secondary service. It's not, although some would say a complete reforms needed, and I'm not sure that I disagree with that, but we also have to be well connected because for now there are only a certain few people who are contacted when you're looking for the reform or mm-hmm. when you're looking for Māori ideas. But some of those ideas are on the ground. Right. And I think that we need to work to increase the capability and confidence of school teachers, mm-hmm. of mothers, fathers and grandparents. Not just of health professionals right. and government
0: officials. So I think you called it. I, I could be wrong. A, a one-way stream of expertise that this is the expert, and these people come under it. So of our consumer leaders here in
1: New Zealand says that you know it takes such a long time to actually access services, mm-hmm. and then when you do get in, if you were Māori, the moment you put your foot in the door, you have a huge chance. Of a bad outcome.
0: Oh, yeah, I read about that, yes. Uh, so just the diagnosis and the, the figures were really big, and I was wondering if they are real figures or um, or just the way, you know, are, are results of, like you said, institutional racism and colonization. So uh,
1: Well, they're all of the above, really, when you think about the, the measuring tool that we're using. Mm-hmm. So if I'm using a ruler and the ruler involves a DSM, then right. I'm going to and diagnose. And so imagine if we didn't have the DSM or the ICD, what would it look like? And so te ku the service that we developed, can tell you that. We have a formal report that went public. It tripled the number of Māori who self-referred into the service for help. So at a time where the government are looking for how to increase access we did that. Our community has one of the highest Māori populations in New Zealand, and our service, Deku Watawata, I'm not there now, but when I work there, and I know that their pop- Māori population is 70%. And so 70% of the people who uh, go into Deku Watawata are Māori, they're not being pathologized. They are sitting down, we're trying to reconnect them with their identity as Māori, or if they have a strong identity, the helping hands are, are consistent with what they value culturally. The outcomes are pretty good, being able to reduce youth inpatient admissions. We have less people who are under compulsory treatment now. The problem is, is that in that same report, evaluating that service, You have uh, general practitioners and primary health organizations and clinicians who might not like that shift. Mm -hmm. And they believe in those clinical pathways. And they believe that when you move away from those clinical pathways that you are increasing risk for the community.
0: So, what, did you experience any kind of a pushback when you were trying to talk about this? Like, wh- what what was the pushback like? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um. So, at a at a national level, um, um, we there are only a, uh, just over a dozen of Indigenous Māori um, psychiatrists, and we are all experts in different spaces. And one of my colleagues, um, he's really good in the bureaucrat space, and mm. and so. He got quite a few people ringing him saying, "You know, what's Doctor Di up to down there?" And we had at a PHO level because our PHOs are private. I'm sorry, company. what are PHOs? So the Primary Health Organisation. Okay, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so we have a set. so they they are private and they are not local to our community. They fly. They come from somewhere else. That I'm talking about the organisation, not mm-hmm. the individual. Right, But also the individuals in there, they, they are experts at doing what they do. And what we've had is a disconnect from the data, the national statistics that show inequity. There's a, there's a disconnect between the data and what they're doing. And you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate that although we might think that there's inequity, the closer we get to my office, the more I'm going to reject the idea that it belongs in my space. Hmm. And so um, that really created some huge pushback. And that pushback, of course, gets in the way of us who are trying to revolutionise the way that we work. Um, It slowed everyone down. It pulled everyone into a really heavy space. When we employed artists, they were considered to be unhelpful. Mahiatura was considered to be something that didn't give people choice, and yet at the front door we were we were seeing, and the formal report shows that we um, saw people sooner, we involved families more, mm-hmm. and use feedback informed treatment So our outcome measure was actually um, valuing family voice. We right. wanted. The negative feedback that we got, so the pushback that we got, we're trying to better understand so that we could change our service design according to the feedback from families and community, but it wasn't appreciated because I believe institutional racism has us all think that the current configuration of the systems and the resources is allocated fairly
0: so it, it kind of ties in with, I'm guessing, people uh, thinking and saying that, you know, colonialism is a thing of the past. And uh, people say, say the same thing in India. I mean, you know, can we just kind of get over it? Uh, the British these you know, what, 70, maybe something more years ago you've been independent. But um, there are these uh, resounding ripples that kind of stick around. The fact that I can speak in English is one of... It's an example of that, actually. Mm-hmm. So, and and speaking in English is related to being high class or so there are all of these you know moral and ethical things so um in in that context i was thinking that how does your approach and uh, its underlying ethics kind of fit in uh, the critique that has uh, arisen around the global mental health movement so china mills and simon fernando have amongst many others written about you know this march into let's go and save these countries uh, the UN has, I think, recently, they, they have developmental goals. The, the WHO has been talking about allocating resources towards mental health. And on the surface, it looks really pretty and it looks um, like they're doing a great job. But there have been concerns and questions. So, with the global mental health movement, how does, um, and, and a resistance to this leftover, these leftover effects of colonization, where, do, where does Mahiyatua fit?
1: I Look, I I definitely believe that the strengthening of the classification system, the Mm DSM, is a perpetuating of Mm colonisation, without a doubt. I I mean, it's fairly simple for for me. Because I guess the global mental health movement and the World Health Organisation, they are wanting better outcomes. And so as human beings, we want better outcomes. Our policies, however... Do not reflect the lived experience of those people who are colonised, and they need to. And so, I don't necessarily think that we um, can afford to say that something's completely wrong. But if we, if, if I first acknowledge that the classification system is doing more damage to Maori, I actually have to look at. So, what am I thinking needs to happen? And it's more than just the classification system. It's more than psychiatry. If you look at our education system and our criminal justice system and even our Ministry of Children of Social Development, the inequities are throughout all of those sectors. And what I think gets in the way of society, and uh, Dr. Kamara Jones talked about this, is that individuality breeds invisible processes Working as collectives is absolutely essential as we're trying to create ideas and opportunities about what do we move to. And, and that's what mahiatua is a response to. Um, when you are using mahiatua with families, we want to co-work. Co-working allows us to um, tap our colleague on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm not sure the family understood that. Or, hey, I think I saw you talk over the family. I know they didn't say anything. Or being able to improve each other's performance. Mm-hmm. At all tiers, when you um, think about managers and governments, it's, there is a lack of transparency about their ideas.
0: Absolutely, yes. Okay.
1: When yeah. we look at meritocracy, and I think that this is where the classification system impacts on communities, Confidence in being able to help people in distress and meritocracy is that myth of meritocracy that if I work hard enough, I can achieve everything that I desire. It's not true, mm-hmm. and so I'm pleased to know that more and more organizations are not so fussed if you don't have a qualification. And I guess that's what mahiatua is about. When you look at our education system, we're still f- founded on a Westminster blimmin' structure. Mm-hmm. And even our Māori schools are trying to deconstruct what the what are perpetuating. And so when we look at meritocracy, we have to agree that creativity is as important as literacy. Mm-hmm. And Ken Robinson talks about that. Yeah. We are... Lo- yeah. Our creative spirit. Right. Our schools are not valuing creativity. And even though our Māori schools are, the curriculum expects them to achieve in numeracy and literacy. And it's not that I don't value that, but our creative spirits are our artists. And our Māori artists are the storehouse for Māori knowledge. It's almost like they're waiting for us to wake up and ask them for the solution. Mm-hmm. So we employed Māori artists into Teku to work alongside. The next step is that you have issues with pay parity because we're psychiatrists, we get paid so much money right. and a Māori right. artist, husband can come right. in and not be valued for everything that is going to get us out of this hellhole.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The third one is a history it gets in the way of secret histories about what happened to our people you know there are iwi there are tribes who uh, were um, forced off their land overnight and so to not have land and this 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 whole concept of poverty is the real issue it's like yes but we're impoverished for a reason Mm -hmm. and so colonial history and the meaning behind it and the reason the reason that it's a huge part but when we're meeting with people who come in because they might be depressed or have an anxiety disorder it's disconnected when we're doing a formulation it's not involved and it's not we're not thinking about options from that formulation and i think it's because we are so so connected to the Mental Health Act, the diagnostic tools, and medication. And when we think that we're being holistic, that means CBT.
0: Right. So it's, it's gentle tweaks in the same already existing thing. And, you know, there is no revision of uh, the underlying ethics and the way knowledge is even constituted, understood. So I, I think you talked about this. Um, you were saying that the DSM has had this effect on uh, the Maori identity. Right, and you write about that in your paper too. Um, on one hand, you talk about, I think, uh, uh, the mental distress and how it's addressed, but also kind of uh, the effect of colonization and institutional racism on the already existing identity. And I wanted to ask a little bit about that. Can you? Give, is there an example or a story of, uh, for example, something that would be considered not necessarily problematic amongst the Maori, but the moment the language is translated, it becomes uh, a disorder? Let's go straight to hearing voices.
1: So when we opened Te Ku Watawata, we employed two tohunga, two specialists, Who one a specialist in the arts and the, the karakia, the incantations, and the other was a, um, a healer, and he, he's spiritual. He is someone that has a strong connection to the spirit world. And pre-colonisation, so too did most of us mm-hmm. as indigenous people. And we still talk about the stories that um, reduced that access to the spirit world, that pathway. It was like a motorway before, access to the spirit world. It's like it's so hard to fathom right now. Can you imagine the moment a child hears a voice that they are going to freely be able to tell their parents? But our reality is the moment a child tells their parents that they're hearing voices, if you know that, I said before that the moment you step foot in the institution's door, you are likely right. to get a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to push that statement that your child just made out mm-hmm. almost like didn't say it. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell them, "Don't tell anyone, anyone else." You're going to tell them, "This is for those of us that are disconnected right. or don't have any pathway." to follow, to learn more about this in a spiritually enriching way. And even though psychiatrists, like I, I love sitting with a group of psychiatrists, you usually, when we're not having to diagnose someone or disagree or find out who agrees with a disorder or what disorder a person has, most of them agree and most of them have come in to psychiatry because they agree that culture matters. And all of the elements about culture matter. And that I guess most of that, that's why most of us are in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. If you think about our medical colleagues, we're the pioneers of acknowledging culture as integral mm-hmm. good well-being. But the structures and the way that we are resourced through funding has everything to do with the diagnoses and this concept of evidence-based treatments. Mm, right. No one's interested in the evidence that's found in the practice. So practice-based evidence. Right. And But I know that our spiritual healers have so many anecdotes of families who get fantastic outcomes from them. And because it's not something that we talk about openly, publicly, how the hell are we meant to even grow that part of our cultural
0: identity and and again it's the the moment you mention it especially um i guess amongst you know our other medical for you or for me academic colleagues, there is a whole thing that comes with oh the the superstition of uh, these beliefs and the pushback is even more severe in india in the cities right so uh where people want to be taken seriously like you said as a as a as a psychologist and as a psychiatrist and you know not as someone who believes in superstition. My response to that is that I might have the
1: same worldview as you, Mm -hmm. and I might not. But really all I care about is whether you get a good outcome. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about individuality versus collective, Mm -hmm. if we're in a Māori space where there's a large group of Māori and that psychiatrist was talking to that community – do they say the same things in the same way as they do in the right. room with the individual? And I, I don't believe they do. I think sometimes we say things, we've got scripts, automatic scripts, we're busy, we don't have time to talk about where our moral compass sits, mm-hmm. we get caught in behaving in ways that are not valued
0: by our
1: communities, our indigenous Unity.
0: I remember talking to a woman who was talking about her mother who used to see things while working in a field and hear voices, um, but she would hear music, and her response to that was to dance with the music. And this is in really extremely rural parts in the Himalayan mountains. And uh, instead of feeling distress and fear, and, uh, which is usually, like you said, our go to emotion, you, you heard a voice that is not there don't tell anyone about it. You know, she would joke around with her family, like, you would tell her, why are you dancing? And she'll be like, well, I can hear this music and, you know, I can see these people dancing in front of me. So I'm, I'm just joining them.
1: You know, I know that I'm the psychiatrist and we work with people because we don't call them patients. We call mm-hmm. them whanau. So whanau means family. And it strengthens that cultural concept there of family being the smallest unit. Mm-hmm. And family used to be collective. It wasn't a nuclear family. Right. Thought about this as, um, as a psychiatrist, as an Indigenous psychiatrist coming into a community where uh, the majority of the population we serve are Māori, a significant po- proportion of the clinicians are Māori, but all the people who make all the important decisions were non Māori, mm-hmm. from overseas mostly. Right. What I noticed is that when I came in, you may as well have said that I was hearing voices. I was just having this little um, chuckle to myself because I thought, well, I may as well have been hearing voices and you guys couldn't hear them and you didn't want to hear them mm. and you just wanted to shut the voices down. Mm. And that that, that that I was thinking of how isolating that can be and how lonely it can be. And mm. if you're in a society and a community that values that experience, to be a voice hearer for me. right. right. Cousin is a voice hearer. I have nieces and nephews and Mm -hmm. friends. Tell us of their experience.
0: It's it's such a, it opens up a whole set of responses to, you know, to the experience of voice hearing rather than it just being fear and terror. And I think there is a study by Lerman and colleagues uh, that talks about that, um, the, the experience of voice hearing in, I think, India, Nigeria, and San Francisco. All right. So I wanted to actually ask you about this. Uh, is there? Um, are you aware of any work that is happening across the world, similar work that that excites you? You know. Um, Look, um,
1: I know you mentioned open dialogue, mm-hmm. and when I first met Patrick Bracken, he yes, he said to me, "Look, the closest that I can think of that even resonates with Mahiatua was open dialogue. and I think that their work's amazing. I just wonder, though, about Indigenous populations. I actually think that there are Indigenous populations who have been colonised, who have their solutions. You know how I talked about whānau water, Right. And being able to know that families have their solutions. The open dialogue's great. I, I just don't know if when you're bringing it into another um, country, whether whether we're getting it right because my husband and I went to open dialogue training in Australia for a week and there wasn't one first nations person there from Australia. Mm-hmm. I guess it struck me and I, we are going to Australia with Mahiatua and in, in August and, and I'm thinking, wow, am I going to do the same thing? I think that communities have so many solutions, but right. we don't give them their right. time. We don't use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet there's so much out there that I don't know
0: of. Uh, you've already talked about the historical context. I was really interested in the the Honga the Suppression Act. I think I read in one of your papers. Uh, mm. Is that what? Uh, and um, that that was slightly disturbing. Uh, can you speak a little <laughs> bit about that? Oh, because I'm sure people don't know. Look, the Tohunga Suppression
1: Act was brought about at a time when government really didn't have a handle of of their communities and and things were getting out of order, so they created some order. And the the Tohunga Suppression Act, some would say, was because some people were um, uh, pretending to be able to offer healing remedies and they they weren't necessarily um, what they were intended to be. There's a whole lot of There are a whole lot of stories about the Tohunga Suppression Act, but what we do know is that it contributed to the reduction in the number of tohunga who contributed to healing. And what it also did is, because when people are in distress, they actually go back to their worldviews, to their mm-hmm. beliefs, um, and that's what we lost. The Tōrunga Suppression Act contributed to the loss of having this belief in a way of being and being able to access treatments that were consistent with that belief. That's what we lost. And as well as that, when we think about well-being, and you'll see that I wear the facial mukwa and that my husband was part of a group that reinstated it, the Tōrunga Suppression Act contributed to the demise of Moko of of our cultural arts, and so um, being able to reinstate those is um, is is a collective healing. To be able to bring back our our language is a collective healing. But we had we had so many that the 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 legislation full stop in New Zealand is 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 colonization in action. We had our Maori mothers were told that breastfeeding was dirty, not not in public, just wow. them just doing, them. doing.
0: Wow, okay.
1: We had um, you, I told you about the language not being able to used mm-hmm. by by our our our, tipuna, our ancestors. Land, we weren't allowed to buy land as a collective. We weren't allowed to keep our land through legislation, that's still going on today. People are building motorways through people's Indigenous lands. When people come from overseas and they don't have an understanding of the impact of colonisation on Indigenous people, I think that they actually themselves perpetuate racism because many, and I've experienced this recently, of having overseas psychiatrists come into our town, they know the answer because they are experts in psychiatry mm-hmm. and it goes against everything that I value and that I believe in. It goes against the reason that I sought out this career. Yeah, so really turning away from psychiatry is um is something that I'm considering now being able to use the skills that I have and in being able to Uh, lead other initiatives like workforce training being able to provide workforce training spaces so it addresses individuality meritocracy Mm -hmm. it restores our histories it ensures that people that come into our space remain an active learner and don't see themselves as
0: experts would you okay is this too extreme or would you say that that the side disciplines can then um kind of contribute to a a colonization of mind now you know since we've talked about uh, colonialism or, or is it too extreme um, a thing to say
1: i well i think that um so so i have a good group of friends who are indigenous psychologists mm-hmm. and psychiatrists and actually doctors medical doctors and we are all saying the same thing and what we are Excited about is to think about how to deconstruct and decolonize our own minds mm-hmm. because as a collective, we can influence our disciplines. Mm-hmm. So there are probably not enough of us, but we're hopeful because it's not just about psychiatry, you see. Right. When, when you look at health across all disciplines, all, all specialties, yeah. Maori, Maori do not fare well in most of the medical specialties, mm-hmm. and so eventually, the government, the Crown, and the Crown's responsibility for ensuring that we have our rights and our our right to express our culture as we desire has actually been imposed on and we they've actually breached that treaty right that treaty partnership so it's it's going to come out i mean it, unfortunately it's at the expense of losses so many losses our people are dying so early my father died too early it's it's a real thing it's this is our reality we're such a small community that when one dies it tears us all apart. And so it's at the expense of that. But we have this saying, uh, Dr. Ranginui Walker, he wrote a book called Ka uh, tonu and it means um, the never-ending struggle. And that's the nature of our peoples. We We were born with problems and we were born with solutions. Mm-hmm. And we have both. And I don't think one has overtaken us, but it has been to the detriment of our own people.
0: So the last thing that I would want to say or ask you is, um, what do you say to people who think that, you know, we can, uh, I can, I ask this because I've seen cultural psychology do, do this sometimes in which they take theories and they kind of just tweak them a little bit and they're like, hey, we integrated this and this will work together. So what do you say to people who say, hey, we can take this approach, Mahia Tua, kind of co-opt it and put it in with you know, CBT and uh, they will work together beautifully. Uh, what, yeah. How would you respond to that?
1: I guess we've developed over time, right? Um, I have a colleague who, um, he may have, only have done the only research there is on CBT for Māori. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they're adjuncts. Uh, all of our ideas are adjuncts. They are additional too. And even though they are with the best intention, they are adjuncts and it's not okay. In fact, I'm in the service that we developed, uh, and it's the front door, it's the mainstream service, it's the front door for all of community and distress to be able to come into. And it's a Māori methodology, but it's called a mainstream service. We're flipping it on its backside, right. and in that, we made it the mainstream, so that's at a systemic level, right. and so. The key now is I have this set of knowledge, and I think it's what we call clinical knowledge, and when do I use it? When do I pull back um, a humanistic response from people who expect me to act like a doctor, or do they? What are the conversations around that? We, We need to have those conversations. We got to a point where we started saying, what does the word clinical mean? So we, because we, we've been talking for a long time about cultural and clinical mm-hmm. and integration of two. And then we talk about the uh, being able to work walk in both worlds. And it's almost there's this expectation that clinical is Western. Right. And if clinical is Western, then you're able to, we, we think that a good mix is being able to walk in a Western, Western world and a Maori world confidently for all of New Zealand society to be able to do that. That's great. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that one is clinical? And so we've been having these conversations and I don't know, we've been trying to find a word that takes out clinical because Mm -hmm. often we use that word to validate our basic assumptions that are absolutely racist, Mm -hmm. but they have no idea that it's come from a racist space. Right.
0: Can you can you give me an example of that? So I, I remember you saying that before too. Uh, some of the basic assumptions or underlying um, uh, oh, sure. ethics, yeah, which tend to be yeah. racist or perpetuate such things. Can you give me an example? That would really help.
1: Uh, so uh, a thirty-year-old Maori man who has a bracelet on, and his mother works in a high-end um, organization for the ministry for the government and. Um, father separated than they wanted me and Mark. They um, wanted, they, and in our service you can ask for who you want. Okay. And so we went home and we got to know them. We went through that process I talked earlier about. I talked about Nōhotatapū and about this mighty god who saw this speck of light and took two of his brothers with him. This man who was absolutely suicidal and so... So down and in a dark space, came alive a little bit as he's listening to the story. Now, he comes into our service and we measure him and he does really well. But for the PHO, Mm -hmm. who we were meant to be working in partnership with to create this innovative service, they wanted documentation on clinical pathways for someone like that. So that would be, okay, a middle-aged man, well, not quite, but middle-aged man who is depressed and suicidal. They want to know the clinical pathway. Mm-hmm. And to say that we did mahiatua means that it's a clinical risk. Oh, wow, okay. Because we didn't do a clinical assessment. But from a Maori paradigm... We did everything that is consistent with what we value mm-hmm. and is consistent with what our ancestors may have done. We started with a karakia to make sure that we were spiritually safe. We did whakapa nongatanga to make sure we were connected and that we sat together with this problem. Mm-hmm even used an evidence-based evaluation tool feedback-informed treatment to make sure we were measuring from their voice, right. which is consistent with the recovery model, right? To listen to their voice. Right. And then we shared, we shared content, but then we shared a story, and they were engaged, and they came back, and they came back again. And one of the problems we have for Māori is A, they walk in too late, and B, they stop coming. And so, when we're talking about clinical risk, could we just like take the word clinical away and mm-hmm. say, yes, there's a risk. There's a risk that Māori do not want to interact with the systems that perpetuate racism. Mm-hmm. Māori don't want to come into a system that is not consistent with their paradigm. And we already have statistics that show that Māori are more likely to get a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. And that is from a system that values clinicians who behave clinically. For me, it's not just the DSM, but it's the whole way that we're structured that perpetuates racism. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about clinical, I'm not actually sure what we're talking about anymore. If we're after a good outcome, let's explore the things that provide a good outcome. Mm -hmm. Stop thinking that it's just individuals walking into an office it starts at schools, it starts in communities. Mm-hmm. And ha- where's our role as psychiatrists in that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where is our role? And if we didn't have a role, are we okay about it?
0: You, you reminded me of um, you know people when they stop coming in for treatment or uh, stop. This happens a lot with uh, psychosis and schizophrenia. People stop taking their medication. And I, I always find it interesting that the language we use is this person is treatment resistant. So the words we use are really important um, and the, the new research on uh, psychosis that is induced due to or long-term use of antipsychotics is fascinating. So there is all of that, and, but the language we use immediately puts the patient and the place of, you know, the, the patient is treatment resistant or the, the type of strain of schizophrenia they have is treatment resistant and, you know, it's not the medication, it's not what we're doing, the problem isn't them.
1: And maybe that's the role of global mental health Mm. and more research comes out because when you look at a lack of knowledge about how to withdraw someone from Mm. a major tranquilizer, how do we do that? How do we communicate with the community and let them know, no, there's not an expectation that you need to stay on this for life. Mm. We don't know what to do. This is a new space for us. Let's work on this together, Mm. preparing families to be in partnership, preparing them to be the researcher of their own plan. Mm. We're not very good at that, being able to de-diagnose. One of my um, uh, advanced trainee uh, teachers uh, talked about most of the time when we're seeing families, we're undoing the damage that's happened. Mm. But if you look at the training that we get, We're not taught that. We're taught how to do it, not how to undo it. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we actually strengthen our trainees in this area and that maybe we became a subspecialty of psychiatry that was more critical and came up with more resources for psychiatrists to undo the damage Mm -hmm. that the institution has made in the first place?
0: All right, uh, Dr. Kopua, this was... um This was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and all your insight. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.